may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to a Monday on the best conversation in talk journalism. And as we take to the air today, I want to let you know that something has happened fairly recently in the last uh, little bit. I don't have the exact timing on it, but in Fort Worth, Texas, there's been a major explosion at a hotel. It is the Sandman Hotel, which apparently was built or remodeled an, an older building, a 20-story high tower that sits on 8th Street in Fort Worth, Texas. A major explosion. Uh, they smelled the smell of gas, and apparently there are about 11 injuries that we know of at this time, and there's quite a disaster scene going on there at the Sandman Hotel in downtown Fort Worth. We'll get you details as they become available, but it sounds like a natural gas explosion is the initial reports, as I said, details as they come. But first, welcome to the program. Glad to have you on board and always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. I want to get into questioning the results of a brand new poll that shows there is a gigantic divide. And it makes me want to ask, how did the Democrat Party become so undemocratic? And I'll give some backup, factual backup to that, because 90 percent of Republicans in America According to the latest poll, it's the CBS News YouGov poll. Ninety percent of Republicans say states should keep Donald Trump's name on the ballot. And I'm not sure about the other 10 percent who think his name should be taken off. On the other hand, 81 percent of Democrats believe that states should disqualify former President Donald Trump from the presidential ballot. According to the polls, 81 percent of Democrats, they don't want his name on the ballot. Now, I understand why they don't want his name on the ballot. They know that he is the likely winner already of November's contest, the presidential election. And I understand that almost anybody who's in a contest would like to see their side win by simply disqualifying the other side, except that doesn't seem very democratic to me. Whereas Republicans believe, keep his name on the ballot. If Americans want him as president, they have a right to choose them. And yet you have elites like Nancy Pelosi, who went on the Sunday discussion shows this past weekend and said that the states should have the right to simply remove the name of any presidential candidate. I think there are times that Democrats stake out positions and they don't think very far ahead. They're more like playing checkers instead of playing chess. Do they realize that when they stake out a position saying, well, any group, any state or group of states could simply remove somebody's name from the ballot and not allow Americans to vote for that candidate? Can you think of a more undemocratic idea than that? And I understand that we live in a federal republic. We have a Republican form of government, small r Republican. We have a federal government with theoretically enumerated and limited powers, which it always seems to be exceeding uh, on a regular basis. And then we have states where the rest of the powers go. And then we have sovereign citizens who have God-given rights. And one of those rights should be to be able to choose our leaders in the small d democracy part of our system of government because we're not a pure republic in that we choose our representatives through a democratic process. We vote for them. 
or we vote again, we vote for somebody else, uh, whichever way you decide to go. But this is kind of a stunning result. 90% of Republicans believe states should keep Trump's name on the ballot. Independents are just about split, not quite an even split. 44% believe that states should remove Trump's name from the ballot, but a solid majority of 56% of independent voters, who are now, I believe, bigger as a group than both Democrats and Republicans, 56% of independents believe that states should allow Trump to stay on the ballot. Colorado and Maine have already disqualified Donald Trump from their primary ballots. The U.S. Supreme Court announced on Friday, after its Friday conference, it will hear the case. And it will hear it very, very soon. Today is the 8th of January. On the 5th of February, less than a month from now, the Supreme Court will get the final written arguments in that case. And they'll hear the oral arguments one month from today, on February the 8th. And then the Supreme Court is going to need to make a fairly quick decision. Do you allow the states to take Donald Trump off the ballot and simply say to citizens, you may want to vote for Donald Trump. We're not going to let you vote for Donald Trump. And again, if we get a naysayer today, I'd love to have a naysayer explain to me how that is an idea of self-government. To have the people in the government now, Joe Biden and his buddies, uh, be able to decide, you may want that guy or gal, you aren't allowed to vote for him and explain how that is an idea that has anything to do with self-government in America. I don't think that it does. In any case, glad to get your calls at 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, you can always vote in our our X poll. I'm getting the habit of calling it the X poll instead of the Twitter poll. Used to be the Twitter poll. Uh, should Joe Biden fire his defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, for keeping a serious hospital stay secret from his boss? Because at least in theory, Joe Biden is the commander in chief of the United States military. And yet when his defense secretary went in for surgery about three days before Christmas, I don't think he expected to have to go back to the hospital, but he did. He did on New Year's Day, about a week later. He had to go back. He was in incredible pain, they say. But we don't know much more about what was or is wrong with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. All we know for a fact is that Lloyd Austin went into the hospital the second time, and they put him in intensive care for four days. So, you know, anything that would put you in intensive care for four days has to be a fairly serious ailment. And yet we still don't know what it is. And at least at this point, Lloyd Austin is telling people, hey, my medical condition is my private business. Well, guess what? It's not. And I'm already hearing from former service members and current service members who are writing to me, telling me, and they're right, that when you go into the U.S. military, your medical status is no longer your private concern. It is the concern of the organization that you have decided to be part of by signing up for, God bless you, uh, military service in the United States. And a gentleman wrote to me and said, Lars, when I went into the military, my medical issues were not my private business anymore, and they shouldn't be the private business of Lloyd Austin either. But apparently Lloyd Austin has taken that position. And Joe Biden only finds out last Thursday, we know now, he only finds out on Thursday that Lloyd Austin was gone uh, in the hospital in intensive care. His duties handed off to his subordinate, the deputy secretary of defense, who, by the way, was on vacation in Puerto Rico. In any case, glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. I really want to talk to a naysayer first. Curtis, 
We love naysayers on this program. Welcome. And tell me what you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer. Sure there. Uh, nice to hear you and good to get on your show. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to tell you that, you know, uh, it's all this hoopla about the voters and the states taking Donald Trump off the ballot. Why don't we look at what the Constitution says? If the Constitution says he should come off because of his involvement in anything, whatever it is, then he should come off. The people don't have a say, nor do the states. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with what you're saying, Curtis. So what does, and, and I'm going to have to hold you for a second. If you'll stick through, Curtis, I love a good naysayer, and I'd love to hear your argument about how they decided that the 14th Amendment takes Donald Trump off the ballot because you'll find they did it in a way that was unconstitutional. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. The 40th President of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you have blamed the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Monday. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls. In fact, I want to get to a, a back to a naysayer here in a bit. But first, I want to talk to our friend Ryan Walters, the school superintendent for the entire state of Oklahoma, who joins me now, former U.S. history teacher, Ryan, welcome back. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me tonight, Lars. I've been fighting against unions in teaching and public education for a long, long time because I think they are the death knell to public education. Am I wrong? No, you're completely right. And we've seen that in, it doesn't matter, blue state, purple state, red state. The unions operate the same way. Now, they do, you know, here in Oklahoma, they do a much better job of trying to advertise themselves differently but ultimately what their goals are are to get money and then power to leverage against students, teachers, parents. And you see that's why they pushed the lockdowns in schools. They found a ransom payment. Feds, if you don't give us hundreds of billions of dollars, we won't open the schools back up. You see that's why they're fighting for parents to be labeled terrorists. They have constantly undermined the school system to leverage their own power. It's not good for kids, not good for parents. Frankly, it's not good for good teachers either. No, and in fact, one of the things I've always complained about, Ryan, is how many teachers are there in the state of Oklahoma? We have 70,000. 70,000 times about 1,000 bucks a year for union dues. Might be a bit more than that, might be a bit less, but that's $70 million a year that the unions get to represent the teachers. How much does it actually cost them to represent the teachers? You know, the contract negotiations and taking care of uh, grievances of one kind or another. How much of that 70 million actually gets spent on the stated purpose of the union? That's a great question. So we, we have been able to figure out that really we think that their entire legal costs really representing teachers and everything else is close to probably under $10 million. So under it's not 10 that million. much money that you're talking about. Yeah, so the other $60 million is merely political. So the unions advertise themselves as a labor organization when, in fact, six out of seven dollars is going to politics. That makes them a political organization, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And I'm going I'm to do even one, one better on that. Uh, absolutely, they go to political dollars. And then half of those political dollars actually go up to the NEA. 
So what they also are doing is, yes, it's politics, but it's national politics, too. And I try to tell folks that all the time of, well, our local, you know, teachers union isn't as bad as the national one. I'm like, number one, you're wrong. Yes, they are. Number two, well, if you think the national one's so bad, more than half of their, their political dollars are being kicked up to the national union. So they are funding that one, too. So they're one and the same. Don't let them get away with pretending like they're not. Now, I'm watching Florida. I don't know if you are as well, but Florida is a state where they apparently have a law that says if union representation of teachers, they're all allowed to quit if they want to because of the Janus decision. But if it falls to a certain level, they have to have a vote and a vote to decertify. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm thinking that the Florida union may get decertified by this, but at the very least, the public gets, gets a say so in that. Do you think that's the route to maybe prying loose the unions from their, gra- their grasp that they have on public education? Yes, it's, a, it's an excellent bite at that apple. You know, some of the things we've done in Oklahoma is we are stripping their, the unions of their ability to automatically withdraw funds from teachers. What they do is they get you to sign up once, and every year it automatically comes out of your paycheck. And they prey on young teachers, you know, signing a bunch of papers their first year, not really fully understanding what is the union, what do they do. And then, frankly, they're in there, and the process to unsubscribe uh, is really difficult. We've heard all the horror stories from teachers. Number two is don't let them use public resources. They oftentimes are using automatic deduction through payroll systems inside the school. They also, a lot of times we found teachers union using um, classrooms to set up their own offices inside the schools and requiring teachers, when teachers are required to attend a meeting, going and presenting to teachers in a meeting they're required to attend. This should not be the way a union operates. If they want to go try to get membership, that should be done outside the school day, outside of the school facility. They should not be coming and using state resources to recruit teachers for political means. No, and I agree with you on that because what's always seemed crazy to me, I'm a member of the NRA, for example. I've had my disputes with the NRA over the years, and for a time I quit, and then I came back, but it's a great organization. If somebody came to the state of Oklahoma and said, hey, there are a bunch of people in Oklahoma all want to be NRA members, can we ma- can, we, can we have automatic dues, uh, uh, you know, withdrawals from people's paychecks who choose to be part of the NRA? state of Oklahoma wouldn't offer up that service to any other group, would it? And that's what you see is, again, look at the way they're utilizing the system to benefit themselves and to leverage their resources against teachers. And then look what they advocate for. That's the other thing is we put out a PR campaign to say, look, let's just play for you what the union said at their national union meeting. And we just ran clips of what they were talking about. And they had extreme positions. And the union here went crazy. They even told me we're losing all these members because of you playing these ads and talking about what we're, you know, what happened. That I go, guys, sorry, the truth hurts. You guys uh, are pushing this stuff, and you're expecting people not to follow it. But the reality is, it is some of the craziest leftism we've seen in this country that's being pushed by the teachers. Well, yeah, because the head of those organizations at the national level, they're as thoroughly political as the day is long. And yet, I'm guessing in Oklahoma, would you say? Well, I don't know. What do you think it is, Republican versus Democrat or conservative versus liberal among teachers? It's certainly not 99% to one, is it? No, most of our teachers are Republicans. I mean, and that's where they get this. It's where it becomes this bullying pressure. That's what they rely on is the ability to. We have teachers here all over the state that talk about we're conservatives, we're Republicans, we are scared to speak out, we're scared not to join, we're scared of what the union will do to us. And we've seen their nasty bullying tactics. And again, if you're a teacher 
you know, we've got to have teachers leave these unions. I've been working very closely with our teachers to say, guys, hey, we'll provide you liability insurance. We'll help you out with these things. Just don't join a teacher's union. It's going to take those dollars and weaponize them for the most radical left-wing agenda we've seen in our state. Yeah, in fact, that might be the, the great ad. Maybe you've already done it, Ryan. But if you said to them, hey, here are all the things the National Union stands up for and your dollars are funding it. Do you agree with pro, pro-abortion, for example? Uh, do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? I'd be, I'd be willing to bet if the majority of your teachers are Republicans, they said, you mean uh, the better part of my $1,000 a year is going to fund that nonsense? You, 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 I would think you'd get them dr- quitting in droves. That's exactly right. And that's why our, our campaign of just talking about what they advocate for has been so effective just to lay out in a red state. <laughs> there is well, no the other... way. Go ahead. Well, there's no way our teachers support that here in a red state. But again, that's not what they say. They say they tell teachers, well, we're just teachers like you. I'm going, guys, they're not. They're union bosses that are making a great living off of taking your money from your paycheck. Well, the other thing that's always bothered me, Ryan, because I had to be in a union a long time ago. We got it decertified as fast as I possibly could. I didn't like it. And, but I was just one vote. I was one member. But I didn't like the way the, the union operates by some really thuggish tactics. And I certainly got threatened by my own union. I thought, what's the irony of I'm paying union dues because I'm not in a right-to-work state, and, and I have to be a member of this bunch, and I'm paying the bills, and they're coming down and threatening me saying you can't come in on your day off and work on documentaries because we will we, you know we will stop you from doing that and and they had legal ways to do that i would think that most americans would say why am i paying for somebody to represent me who then wants to tell me what to do instead of the other way around if i hire a lawyer the lawyer works for me if i hire an accountant the accountant works for me not the other way around that's exactly right and you've seen it with their tactics they bully they absolutely bully. It is absolutely like the mob. They want to absolutely bully people into joining. And then, frankly, that's what they do to legislators behind the scenes. It's what they do to parents. Remember, they lobby the Biden administration to declare parents domestic terrorists and treat domestic them as such from the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> there is nothing beyond what they will do. And that's how nasty they are. They do this PR camp. Oh, we're just a bunch of nice teachers. No, their, their um, leadership is absolutely not. And they've got a lot of people fooled. I think you're, you're, you're fighting a good battle. That's Ryan Walters. Thank you, Ryan. Ryan's the Oklahoma State School Superintendent, a former U.S. history teacher. And by the way, folks, I regularly and routinely invite union representatives on this show. And if you're saying to yourself, but Lars, I've never heard those union reps on your show. Nope, they turn us down every single time. I would love to talk to some of the union reps and say, why are you doing business this way? And how how in the world can you take people's money and then not represent what they really want? Back in a moment, we'll talk to some naysayers. And you got the The Lars Larson Show. people with disabilities Nixon was wrong about a lot of things but he's right about this people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook what say you Joe Biden 
This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to get to your phone calls and emails. And if you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Cast a ballot in our X poll. We used to call it the Twitter poll. Now it's the X poll. Uh, should Joe Biden fire his defense secretary for not informing the president that his defense secretary was going to be out of action in the intensive care unit of a hospital for some as yet unspecified medical problems? But I want to get back to naysayer Curtis, uh, who made the point, And Curtis, I don't want to misstate what you said. You said, well, if the Constitution, particularly the 14th Amendment, says that Donald Trump uh, should not be qualified for the ballot, then state should take him off. Did I get that about right? Well, yeah, but um, let, let me kind of add to that and say that, say it this way, that, you know, the thing about the people should make this decision and the state courts should make this decision and the state board of electors and the secretaries of state, and my statement, my comment is that none of those have that authority. It's all up to the Constitution. It is. Now, let me ask you about this, Curtis. Do you think that Donald Trump is disqualified to be president because of the 14th Amendment? Well, my personal opinion, and it comes not from being any kind of a scholar, but I, I try to, to read and I listen to you guys on your talk show. I listen to uh, Hannity. I listen to CNN. I listen to Fox. I'm all over the place. And I'm, the, the stuff that I pick up on is, yes, I think he is disqualified because he's mentioned as, well, he mentions no officer. That's what I go by, no officer. And then the question comes up, is the president an officer? And a word Curtis, to the Constitution, yes. Curtis, the, the, the Supreme Court yeah. has previously held that the president is not included in that list. But that's a side issue. I want to ask you this. Do you think Donald Trump was involved in an insurrection? That's the key part of the 14th, the, that section of the 14th Amendment that says if you were involved in an insurrection, an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States, you are disqualified to run for office, uh, both state office and federal office. What do you believe that Donald Trump did that said that he was involved in that insurrection? Because that's what the 14th Amendment requires. You had to be involved in an insurrection. What did Trump do? Well, let me ask you this to make sure I understand your question. Okay. Are you calling January 6th an insurrection? No, I'm not. I don't think January 6th okay. was an attempt to overthrow. But even if we assume it was, even if we assume it was, was he involved in creating the incident in the, in the Capitol building on January 6th? And if so, how? I what think, did he do? I think, when, I think when he stands in front of all his supporters and tells them, we're going to go down to the Capitol, and we're going to fight like hell for our country, and we, we, we're going to uh, go, him, and I'm going to go hope you're I hope you're aware, Curtis, you're misquoting him, because I've, I not only watched the speech live on television, not in person, I read the speech, I, I went back too. and rewatched it. He said, let's go up on Capitol Hill and peacefully and patriotically tell the Congress what we... Okay. He also made reference to fighting like hell, but virtually every politician who's ever drawn breath in the last several thousand years has made references to fighting like hell. It doesn't mean that you then go up and physically attack the government, but even if you do, do you know what the primary complaint of the people, even those people who broke the law 
in, by going into the Capitol building where they weren't supposed to be. We can argue about, you know, who let them in. And I think there are some big questions there. What the involvement of the FBI was. But even with all that, what was the one thing they wanted the Congress to do? Yeah, they wanted the Congress to uh, not certify the election. And, and they, wanted the, they wanted the votes counted. Now, do you think the 2020 election counted only the legally cast ballots that were cast in that election? Well, you know, uh, that's probably a little bit arguable because I think in every election there's going to be some discrepancies. A few. But I think with all the stuff that's been... But do you... do you with all the... Do you believe... Yeah, with everything that's been researched, I think the majority of those votes were counted properly. The, the majority... The problem is, Curtis, the margin is what matters, not the majority. Let's say you had an election, and let's make the numbers easy for a simple guy like me. Say you had an election involving a, a thousand people, and you're running against me, and you get 550 votes, and I get 450 votes. Let's assume that we know that all the votes are valid votes, and you get 550, and I get 450. It isn't what the majority voted. It's those last 50 votes that make all the difference in the world, isn't it? That's right. Okay, because I could say, well, the majority of the votes were valid. It was only the last 55 votes where, where Curtis cheated and, and, and got votes that he wasn't entitled to. So the majority doesn't matter. What does matter, in those six battleground states, the difference, the whole net difference yeah, between Biden and Trump was 144,000 votes in six states. Right. So, yeah, majority is not a good term to use there. I agree. But I'm still saying that no one on the other side has been able to prove that there was enough of any discrepancy to make a difference. Because most no in of most of the 60 court cases, they were thrown out based on process rather than based on looking at the actual evidence. And, Curtis, it's a mistake that a lot of people are making where they say, well, the courts heard the argument. No, they didn't. In most cases, in almost all those 60 cases, the court said, you filed too late, you filed too early, you don't have standing. So it's as though if you filed a complaint to your boss, and let's say the complaint was completely valid, and your boss said, yeah. I'm sorry, Curtis, you have a valid complaint here, but you put it on the wrong size piece of paper, so therefore I'm throwing it out. And you'd say, hold on, uh, you never even looked at my complaint. And he said, yeah, that's right, because you put it on the wrong size piece of paper. It was a process decision, and the courts do that. But let's go back to the first question. D did Donald Trump involve himself in an insurrection, an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States? Yes or no? Well, yeah, I think we've established that, but we haven't established. No, no we I haven't. Hold on. Tell me about. what he did that involved him. Well, now, if the right. Joe Biden he FBI looked I mean, at that question and said, no, Trump was not involved in the insurrection, the Joe Biden DOJ looked at it, and believe me, I think if Merrick Garland thought he could make a, a winning case against Trump and say Trump <laughs> was involved in an insurrection, Merrick Garland would have done that one in a heartbeat. Did, he, did Merrick Garland bring a, a, a charge of the crime of insurrection against Donald Trump? What? Well, what I'm saying is that when I say we've established, I mean, I've answered that. I've already told you I believe that he was involved and he was the leader of it. what did he do not to only involve that, himself? He gave, he gave a speech and said, let's go up and peacefully and patriotically tell the Congress what's on our mind. That's actually in the First Amendment. He's eating and drinking 
She sat what? in the dining room eating and drinking and didn't try to stop it. Well, hold on. As a matter of fact, he did. He sent out tweets. The problem yeah. was, uh, you know what Twitter did? Later. Twitter right. turned his account off. So even the attempts he made at around, I think it was 2.30 in the afternoon, to say, everybody go home, uh, the, they were unsuccessful because the folks who run things, the folks who are politically inclined, like Twitter's former management, X's former management, said, let's turn it off so he can't even talk to those people. So, Curtis, the last question is this. Do you believe that four justices of the Colorado Supreme Court have a right to decide without evidence, without testimony, without allowing Trump to confront his accusers, and they say you're guilty of insurrection? Can they find a man guilty of, of the crime? It's a federal crime of insurrection without involving him at all and giving him any due process at all and just say you're guilty of insurrection, you're off the ballot? Can they do that? I think the Supreme Court has to decide on whether the process was correct or not. Okay, and you know what I think? I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to throw Colorado out on its ear. But Curtis, you're a great naysayer. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson show. We naysayers always go to the head of the line, and we turn to Daniel Turner, the president of Power of the Future, when it comes to issues of climate and energy. Daniel, Happy New Year to you, and welcome back to the program. Lars, great to be on with you again. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely glad to do it. It sounds as though climate czar John Kerry, who I thought was a gas bag when he was secretary of state, wasn't much use, and he wasn't much use as a presidential candidate either, but he's used to a, a fat and happy lifestyle because he marries well. He's managed to do that twice, marrying rich ladies, because he, he was kind of a deadbeat prior to that, um, that, that he likes to see his staff paid well, too, at the expense of the taxpayers. Is that, is that the simple version of this? It, it is, and, and his office technically, as our international climate czar, his office technically is within the Department of State. And um, an article came out, a report came out today, how multiple members of the media, groups like My Own Power of the Future, have tried to use the Freedom of Information Act to just find out about this office. Who are his staff? What are their budgets? What are... And the response is, we're not disclosing that. Um, and, and, you know, these are taxpayer-funded staffers. The latest response we got from the State Department is revealing their identities um, would be a huge breach of their of their private uh, information. You know, I'm not private? looking for their home address, Lars. I just well, want to know who they are. Well, private, I mean, if uh, look, one of the reasons, Daniel, I've never taken a job working for any government agency is because when you work for government, you're no longer in the private sector. How in the world can they claim privacy for people who work drawing a public paycheck in a public agency? Exactly. And this is an office that from its very inception has always been a bit shadowy. No one knows to whom they are accountable in the Congress. There's never been any money appropriated uh, to this office. We called, my organization called for the Congress appropriations to officially come in and, and defund it and strip them of any power and authority because even the president and even the president's most powerful cabinet secretaries are also accountable to the American people. And we do that vis-a-vis -vis the Congress. So here's John Kerry and his staff. We know they were in Dubai back in November for weeks on end. But what are they doing? What's their goals? What are their, what are their objectives? How do they measure success? 
and and quite frankly, who are they? I think that's a very fair question to know who these people are and to say, well, we can't tell you that because that would compromise their privacy. Well, then you don't belong in government. There are no secrets anymore. These aren't well, covert CIA operatives. They're climate change activists. Yeah, they are. And, and it's not as though you can even argue that they're, say, in military positions where there's a security issue there. These people work exactly. for the State Department. They're part of Foggy Bottom. So so what? And the, the top aides make $186,000 a year. Now, I realize that in Washington, D.C., an awful lot of people who would make a lot more money in the private sector take jobs in government. But they're almost notoriously sort of uh, the paychecks are not as big as you'd expect. I mean, the same position working in a private company doing the same kind of thing might pay a whole lot more. But you've chosen to take a job in government. But 186 grand doesn't that put them in the same range as most of the White House staff? That puts them in the range almost of, 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 of Congress of cabinet secretaries. Yeah, the government uh, um, um, payroll is is very hierarchical, and it's pretty fixed, right? And to jump from one level to another to have these uh, the, what they call step increases, um, you know, you need an awful lot of scrutiny to, to, to jump up to that next level. And so here are these folks. Again, no one knows their name. No one vetted them. The Congress never approved them. And yet they're getting paid at the same level of undersecretaries of of state, of, of other agencies. And again, just who are they? How are they chosen for their job? Those are fair questions. They're constitutionally required questions, considering these people are all funded by the taxpayers. Well, the other thing you don't get, Daniel, I'm talking to Daniel Turner from Power of the Future, the, because as a reporter, I look at this and say, if I know who the people are, what their names are, I don't need their home addresses, I don't need the names of their spouses or the names of their children or where their kids go to school. But if I have their name, I can say, why, this is a person working for John Kerry in the climate office who used to work for the Sierra Club or or used to work for a major oil company. Either way, it may mean something, it may not, but hiding their identities hides your ability to go and find out what's in their background and what are their previous statements about various issues. And, and, and I think that may be what they're trying to hide from the public. We don't want the public to know what these jokers were saying before they got their nicely compensated jobs working for, uh, for climate czar Kerry. It's a brilliant point, and, and that's absolutely right, because these folks likely do come from these huge green organizations like the Sierra Club or Greenpeace or the National Resources Defense Council, and there they probably have given lectures. They may have authored books um, or spoken at panels where they've made outlandish statements. So when you do hide the identity of, of government staffers, you are hiding th their background, and this is all deliberate. Members of Congress have asked, have been, have been told no. Members of the media have asked the same, and, and my organization and many C4s have just asked for what is a very fair and honest question. Who, who is your office? Who's the personnel? Where do they come from? How are they chosen? And the fact that John Kerry on his high horse gets to tell us, I'm not answering those questions. Again, who, who's the threat to democracy? Right, Joe Biden keeps lecturing us about democracy, and he has how many secret offices are we going to have in government before we have to question our own democracy? Yeah, at least cabinet secretaries have to be confirmed and they can be asked questions. And the Boston Herald pointed out that Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, you know, was appointed to his job by Biden. He's, uh, what was it, $203,000 a year as Labor Secretary. And he, and he shared all of his staff names, titles, and pay this past summer, according to the Boston Herald. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. You're on the public payroll. 
your paycheck is public. I work for the private sector. Daniel, my, my paycheck is private. And, it, and I don't choose to work in government for a reason. And, and this is very emblematic or very telling that it's about a climate change office, right? Again, these are not covert CIA offices. These are not military offices guarding our national security secrets. This is a climate office, and it goes to show you what this agenda is all about. It has never been transparent. It has never been honest and fair with the American people. Secrecy and lies are basically how they operate and continuing to scare the American people. So we all just shut up and and do what they want us to do, whether it's give up our gas stove, give up our car, whatever the answer is, this is how it gets done. And meanwhile, John Kerry gets to call himself climate czar and climb on private jets and fly to the other (laughs) side of the planet to give us lectures on how using fossil fuel is one of the most evil things you could ever imagine. Daniel, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to talking to you later on this year. It's going to get hot during an election year. So thank you so much. Thanks, Lars. You betcha. That's Daniel Turner, the president of Power of the Future. I'm always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go first. Check me out on Instagram. You might find that interesting, but be prepared. I've got a face for radio. And you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday, and we call this the best conversation in talk journalism. So let me start with this, and then I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Number one, if Joe Biden wants help with his border problems, and believe me, he does have problems on our southern border especially, well, one of the biggest helps he could get would be from Mexico. But Mexico, seeing that Joe Biden has walked himself into a real corner, Mexico is demanding big-time dinero if it comes to giving the United States any kind of help. And the biggest help that Joe Biden wants, I don't think he actually wants to stop the flood of illegal aliens coming into the country. He just wants to kind of quiet it down until November because he thinks that somehow he can persuade Americans that having already allowed 9 million illegal aliens to flood into America and even turn the Border Patrol from a border guarding agency into an agency whose job it is to simply facilitate a fast track for as many illegal aliens into America rather than keeping them out of America, So he goes over to Lopez Obrador, who's known as AMLO, the president of Mexico. And guess what? He said he called on the United States to approve a plan that would give $20 billion to Latin America and Caribbean countries, suspend the U.S. blockade of Cuba, remove all sanctions against Venezuela, and grant at least 10 million Hispanics living illegally in the United States the right to remain and work legally. Yeah, 
seems like a fairly major ask when, if you ask me, because Mexico is saying, you want some help with the border? We can do that. You're going to pay big time, Joe. And then the only question is whether or not Joe is willing to actually do what Obrador is suggesting. That's the kind of situation that Joe Biden finds himself in, where the border is out of control because he made it out of control. He allowed his Secretary of Homeland Security to actually open up the floodgates. And now that they're open, getting them closed might be just a little bit difficult. And I'm going to tell you right here that if by some miracle, a terrible miracle, but a miracle all the same. Joe Biden manages to hang on to the presidency. I don't think it's going to happen, but if it did, I think you can you can look back to these last three years as being a small part of what we should expect in another four years of a Democrat administration. They got nine million in. They'll probably get another three to four million illegal aliens into America this year. And then four more years of that. And you might as well kiss goodbye every single election and probably America's very existence. Glad to have you with me. You want to jump in? It's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you first in line. You can also send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Later on this hour, some brand new information in the murder, I think she was murdered, of Ashley Babbitt on January 6, 2021. And the cop who shot the bullet that killed Ashley Babbitt, boy, did he do something according to a brand new lawsuit that's been brought. The lawsuit we told you about last week, the Judicial Watch and her uh, uh, her uh, widow or widower, uh, her former husband, have filed against the government. And the information about Lieutenant Michael Byrd is absolutely disturbing in what it says about what the Capitol Police were doing that day and what Lieutenant Michael Byrd in particular did. I'll share that with you a little bit later on this hour. In the meantime, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go first to Pat in Nevada listening on KKFT. Hey, Pat, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, thank you for taking my call, Mr. Larson. Sure. I think everybody is concentrating too much on Section 3 of Amendment 14 and obtuse definitions of who's a who's an officer. It seems to me that it's pretty clear in Section 1 of the same amendment. It says, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due, due process. process of law. Yeah. He hasn't even been accused of insurrection, let alone found guilty. Nope. He hasn't. And the other problem, the problem I was trying to get with, with the prior, prior naysayer, Pat, is when people say, well, of course he was involved in the insurrection. I said, you believe that because you listen to the talking points of the Democrat Party. If you just ask people, since Section 3 says you can be disqualified from holding office, both federal and state office, if you, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, well, what was Donald Trump's engagement in insurrection or rebellion? Because they say, well, he gave a speech. I said, was that speech 
encouraging people to overthrow the government? Or was it encouraging them to peacefully and patriotically, as Donald Trump said specifically, go up on Capitol Hill and talk to their representatives, which last time I checked seemed to match up nicely with the First Amendment that says you have a right to petition your government for redress of grievances. And that doesn't just mean inside a courtroom. It means I can go to a member of Congress and say, hey, buddy, I don't like that bill you voted for. I'm allowed to do that. I can even be kind of blunt in my language. And only if I'm trying to overthrow the government, do you think that any one of those 1,200 people who were finally charged in January 6th were trying to overthrow the government or merely hold the government to its own rules? I think they just got caught up in something that got out of hand. Well, I know, but that's kind of a generic statement, Pat. Do you think they were trying to overthrow the government? Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't think so either. And, and, and even if they had, as you pointed out, Donald Trump had no due process. The Colorado Supreme Court just held a hearing, said whatever they said in the January 6th uh, committee report is the truth. We're declaring it so. We're not going to give Donald Trump due process. We're not going to have a hearing. We're not going to see, and he's, to this point, he's never been accused of the crime of insurrection. He was generically accused of insurrection in the impeachment, but the impeachment is not a criminal accusation. The impeachment was just, we think Donald Trump's committed insurrection. And guess what? The U.S. Senate said, we're acquitting him of that charge. So, and and when you point out, they, there was the opportunity to charge Donald Trump with insurrection. The FBI could have come back and reported to the Department of Justice, we believe this man has committed the crime of insurrection. Uh, they didn't. They specifically said, we don't believe Donald Trump committed insurrection. The DOJ could have brought the charges without the FBI. They didn't. Jack Smith, the special counsel, could have brought a charge of insurrection. And believe me, if there's any political partisan out there who would have been likely to bring a criminal charge like that against Donald Trump, it's Jack Smith. And he decided not to charge Trump with insurrection. So if the FBI, the DOJ, and the special counsel, all of them political partisans, and Merrick Garland and Joe Biden as well, political partisans, if none of them ever thought they had a winning case to accuse Donald Trump of insurrection, then how in the world does the Colorado Supreme Court, on its own, without much due process at all, decide that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Glad to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to take your phone calls and emails. Coming up in just a moment, what is a white privilege knapsack? And why does Ohio State University require students to use one? We're going to talk about that next. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday and always glad to take your calls. We'll get back to calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our X poll. Used to be called a Twitter poll, but now it's X. 
uh, has to do with the defense secretary and the fact that he kept his rather serious illness that put him in intensive care for four days a secret from his boss by the name of Joe Biden. But that's the Twitter poll or X poll. You can find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. First, I want to talk to Zachary Marshall, who is the editor-in-chief for Campus Reform and who I imagine can tell me all about what a white privilege knapsack is. Zachary, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back. What is a white privilege knapsack, and why does Ohio State University want students to be using one? The knapsack is a training activity that colleges have used for the last 35 years. It's based on a 1988 essay called White Privilege, um, and it asks people to imagine carrying this metaphorical knapsack of privilege around with them and to unpack it, taking each item of privilege out. Now, campus reform has been reporting on this activity for years. And actually, when I was getting my PhD at George Mason, I was forced to teach this essay and this activity. And I find it so toxic that we have to call this activity, we have to call out this activity and this requirement because it teaches students that if you're white, you are middle class or wealthy, and if you're black, you are you must be poor. So the racial stereotypes and assumptions it makes harms um, students of all backgrounds. Well, and in fact, this exercise of saying you have white privilege, yeah. so we're going to have you pretend mm -hmm. that you have this knapsack and you're carrying it around all yeah. the time, unpack it, and then you examine your own white privilege and where you supposedly benefit. Are there students mm -hmm. that are willing to go along with this nonsense? Oh, yeah, I saw them firsthand when I had to teach them at George Mason. I, you know, could not in good conscience teach them that because when you look at the essay that accompanies it with, it assumes that if you're black, you must be poor. So instead, I turned the activity around and I said, let's look at the assumptions that the writer is making. And you tell me where there are holes in this argument or where you think it makes sense. So I used it as a way to teach students how to think critically. And that's the biggest problem we have right now is that higher education is not teaching students how to think critically to think for themselves. It is hoping that they take these activities like the knapsack uh, training requirement and just take it as an act of faith as part of this um, leftist agenda to divide people based on how they were born. Well, and in fact, it, it almost seems like the kind of thing that would blow itself up, Zachary, if you know what I mean. And that mm -hmm. is that you've got a bunch of students. Do you assume that any student who's black or brown is poor? There, there may have been, there may be students who come in who are, very, you know, from affluent families who are people of color. Mm. And then there may be white yeah. kids who come from the trailer park but manage to get a scholarship and they're at Ohio, at, at whatever university they're going to. Even the students would see the flaws in that, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. And I've seen them get very angry. You know, I've taught at both public and private institutions, and I've had middle class and affluent black students tell me how angry they get when um, those on the left assume they must be struggling or they overcome barriers because they think that that's, you know, a form of racism that hurts their community and doesn't recognize that black people can achieve excellence in this country. And I've also had white students who come from trailer parks in tears because no one will recognize them or see, you know, or value the struggles they've had with um, mental health or drug addiction in their families. So, yeah, this is absolutely something students, when they feel unable to speak for themselves and think for themselves, they hate this activity.
Well, in fact, Jack, if you don't mind me mentioning this, I mean, I was a reporter for a long time, so I had to deal with lawyers all the time uh, because we didn't want to get, you know, we didn't want to be involved in defamation. And one of the cases that stuck in my mind was, I think it was Business Week or one of the major magazines back when there were still, you know, printed magazines. Um, they, they, uh, they had a report, they had a story they were doing about black uh, Americans getting into middle management in companies. So they sent a photographer out on the streets of New York mm-hmm. and said, we need a picture to go along with this. So he snaps a picture of a black gentleman walking along in a suit carrying a briefcase. And they put this and, he, and they put him up as, you know, black middle man, you know, black Americans are moving into middle management in companies. This is like 30 years ago or maybe even 40 years ago. And it turned out he was the CEO of a company. And it didn't exactly go over well with his, you know, yeah. professional colleagues that he'd, he'd showed up on the front of a magazine described as middle management when, in fact, he was running the company and he didn't like it. And he took him to court and he won uh, because because the photographer just assumed, well, uh, you know, here's a guy in a suit. You know, he's black. So I'll just assume he's at best in middle management, certainly not running the company. Those assumptions are really dangerous. No, you're completely right. And they're also symptomatic of people not knowing how to think critically or think themselves to recognize, oh, I should have asked what his position was before I took that photograph. And the repercussions we have for American society are very dangerous. You know, campus reform has been reporting for years now that universities, through these activities like the uh, invisible backpack, are graduating generations of future American leaders who don't know how to handle complex social complexity. They don't know how to see individuals for individuals. And they don't know how, how to process complicated information except to reduce everyone to groups of oppressed and oppressor. And we can see time and time again, those are false distinctions. Is, is there a hope that you could get to people like, say, the Board of Trustees or Board of Chancellors, mm-hmm. whatever they call it, at, at places like Ohio State University, and, and approach them and say, listen, you know, will you rethink these policies and tell the university uh, to behave differently? Because those folks are actually in a position to direct the activities of the college, aren't they? And I would imagine that even on a board of directors, you know, the board of trustees mm-hmm. or whatever they call the governing board of that university, there are probably, you know, white members who came from meager backgrounds. And there may be uh, people of color who came from very affluent backgrounds and they all end up on the board of directors, but they don't sit and look at each other and make those kinds of assumptions. Is that perhaps a window into getting the universities to change their tune? 100%, especially at public universities. We're seeing right now in the last few months, um, Texas, Oklahoma, Utah, South Carolina, for example, the um, public universities in Iowa, uh, public universities, the governors, the lawmakers are cracking down on the DEI spending and types of programs that allow this type of activity to happen. So we're definitely seeing uh, more people take notice and we're seeing a trend against DEI and against these equity based type training activities. And the best thing people can do is put pressure on their local lawmakers on the trustees or anyone else at these public universities, because, you know, ever since we've seen with anti-Semitism and congressional hearings, more and more lawmakers and more and more trustees are now taking, you know, second and third looks at what's been happening under their noses. Are any of the academics changing their tune at all when they realize that these are not just intellectually bankrupt arguments, but they're morally Mm -hmm. bankrupt? 
It's that's a very good question. Um, as an adjunct professor um, and an education reporter, I can see um, in my jobs that you're seeing center left and more moderate faculty who have defaulted to these leftist agenda and training um, programs start to second guess their assumptions. So we're starting to see the middle kind of detached from the far left. The leftist professors, the Marxist professors are determined as ever, but I think um, those professors who have less extreme ideological commitments are starting to realize that they have blindly gone along with a very toxic and disastrous um, line of curriculum for years now. Zachary, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Zachary Marshall is Editor-in-Chief for Campus Reform. I'm glad to get your calls in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. And I want to tell you about the latest details we've learned about what I consider was the murder of Ashley Babbitt on January 6th. Now, you think you might know the story. Well, there was a police officer, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, and he shot Ashley Babbitt. That's true. And he was defending the Capitol. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a new detail that's emerged because of a $30 million lawsuit brought on behalf of the estate of Ashley Babbitt, and it's an eye-opener. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. He may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. (laughs) This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to get to those new details on Ashley Babbitt's murder. But before I do that, let me grab this quick call from Lynn, who's calling in from Idaho, listening on the home of Kevin Miller, and that's KIDO, one of our great affiliates around America. Lynn, welcome to the program, and what's on your mind? Hi, Lars. I was just listening earlier to uh, talking about Trump and the elections, and uh, I told the man that uh, answered the phone, you know, I voted for him twice, but I don't, right now, it would be really hard for me to vote for him. But uh, I, it's like one of those things where I like the guy's policies, but some of this stuff is just uh, over the top, like war, Operation Warp Speed that thrust the, that uh, horrible vaccine on, on us and then the government forcing people to take it. Uh, it's ruined many, many, many lives. Uh, you know, some people weren't affected. They go, hey, I had the shot. I had whatever. But it's not it's 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 a. EUA, it was, you know, experimental use authorization. Experimental use authorization. Look, Lynn, um, uh, I'll tell you my position. I've never been jabbed. I'm not going to take the jab, okay? I've had other vaccinations. I I decided not to take the mRNA shot. I don't think it's a vaccine. I don't think, I mean, a, a lot of things we were told about it, including by Joe Biden in 2021, that if you get the shot, you can't get COVID, a lie. If you get the shot... If you get COVID, you won't transmit it to others, a lie. If you get the shot, you aren't likely to go to the hospital, a lie, another lie. And uh, and if you get the shot, you can't die. All things Joe Biden said, all things that were demonstrably untrue. 
But Donald Trump never tried to force the vaccine on anyone. Now, as president, I don't expect him to be a medical researcher, um, you know, any more than, you know, necessarily somebody runs uh, the Ford Motor Company knows how to change tire or put a put a fuel injection system in. So Trump says we're going to have this system. You know, we're going to have this program to develop some kind of protection against the vaccine. They did not. I mean, they 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 came up with a vaccine that, as you point out, was experimental and uh, was was authorized only in, under the EUA. One of the details you should know, the only time the FDA's own rules allow it to give emergency use authorization is if there are no other effective therapeutics. Well, they declared ivermectin off limits, hydroxychloroquine off limits. There was a lot of cheating around the edges. But I don't hold Donald Trump to that because he's not a medical researcher. He's not the guy who developed the the way that they were going to go after this disease. And at the end of the day, he said, it's your choice whether you take it or not. And the government that tried to force the shot on people was the government of Joe Biden, the one that said we're going to use the OSHA rules to force people to take the shot. We're going to use the military to force people to take the shot, you know, to at least force members of the military to take the shot. Trump didn't do any of that, so why hold that against him? Yeah, well, that leads right to my next, what I really wanted to talk to you about. Well, then get to it, because because I need to to let people know about the latest details on Ashley Babbitt's murder. Yeah, well, the late, yeah, it was no doubt it was murder. I mean, the guy, well, you know. I know, well, I'll get, but there's some brand, brand spanking new information today. What was the other thing you wanted to mention? And then I'll let you go. Well, it was uh, along the lines of the shot, and that is the medical establishment for, I remember hearing, the first time in history, refused to treat sick people, told them to stay at home until you couldn't breathe anymore, then yep. come to the hospital and we'll slap a tube down your lungs. You know, the thing is, is that... Well, our, and people's our country, people like the governor of New York, who decided to send a bunch of sick people home to nursing homes where they infected other people. Exactly. Uh, I think that Cuomo, uh, Cuomo killed a lot of people by doing all that. But again, not Donald Trump's decision, not his actions, no, not no, even his not, authority. That's right. But getting back, okay, getting back to what I was going to say about the uh, the whole thing is, you know, we're, we're, people talk about us being down a slippery slope uh, our country going down the tubes. You know, we're we're no so far at the bottom of the tube. You, you'd take a pressure washer to get us out. We're, we're we're our country is inundated. They talk about conspiracy, this conspiracy that by left wingers or by progressives or whatever. How can it be a conspiracy when the whole establishment is for the the conspiracy way? You know, it's no longer a conspiracy. It's just the way it is. I, I understand your point. Lynn, thank you very much. By the way, about Ashley Babbitt. Now, why is her death so very significant? She was the only person murdered on January 6, 2021, despite the lies of Joe Biden, who said that Brian Sicknick, the Capitol cop, was murdered. He was not. He died of natural causes the next day. That other cops were murdered, also untrue. And yet Ashley Babbitt was shot to death. And what was she doing? At the time it happened, or the next day, I told people, I don't have a problem with the police shooting somebody with one caveat. That is, the person you shoot has to be presenting an imminent threat. In other words, you have to be a threat right now. So if you have a guy or a gal pointing a gun at a cop or pointing a gun at anybody and they're doing so illegally, 
you can shoot them to eliminate the threat. Ashley Babbitt was doing none of those things. Let me tell you what's come out in this brand new lawsuit. I mentioned it last week on Friday when the uh, when Ju- Judicial Watch filed this lawsuit on behalf of Ms. Babbitt's uh, widower and uh, and her family. And it's for 30 million bucks and it's against the Capitol cops and the U.S. government. Here's what they have contained in that suit that's so hugely important. So you all know the story. Ashley Babbitt was climbing through a tiny window to try to get into a Capitol hallway. She was already inside the building. And the cop, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, there's no disputing that he fired his Glock 40 caliber and the one shot killed her dead. Guess what happened immediately afterward? According to the lawsuit, and Epic Times has a great story on this, and I don't expect to see it in much of the mainstream media. Within one minute after firing the fatal bullet that struck Ashley Babbitt on January 6th, Lieutenant Michael Byrd broadcast a radio report claiming shots were being fired at him in the lobby of the Speaker's office and that he was prepared to fire fire back. He made that radio report after he shot Ashley Babbitt, according to the lawsuit, that he was preparing to fire back. I think he was doing a CYA, cover your backside. According to the lawsuit, he fired, striking Ms. Babbitt in the left shoulder, then announced afterward that he was being fired on and he was ready to return fire. And as the lawsuit says, in fact, no shots were fired at Lieutenant Byrd or his fellow officers. The only shot fired that day was the single shot that Lieutenant Byrd fired at Ashley Babbitt. He heard the loud noise of the gunshot. He saw her fall backward from the window frame. The Epic Times reached out to the Capitol Police and Mr. Byrd's attorney for comment on the lawsuit and its allegations. Michael Byrd is now a captain with the U.S. Capitol Police. It gave him a promotion. A few minutes prior to the shooting, a police dispatcher mistakenly reported they're taking shots into the House floor. That turned out to be wrong. Lieutenant Byrd erroneously believed and acted on a false radio call or a false report of shots fired on the House floor. And yet, did Ashley Babbitt have a gun? Nope. Did she display a gun? Nope. And we've talked about these issues before in ordinary police work, that if you have the police and you shoot a guy because you think you see a gun, but there is no gun, you've got a problem. In this case, Lieutenant Byrd shot Ashley Babbitt when she was in the middle of trying to crawl through a small window. She was kind of curled up in a ball, and uh, he shoots her. Does she have a gun in her hand? No. Was she showing a gun? Nope. Did she have? Was she doing anything else that could have been perceived by anybody, not just Lieutenant Byrd, but any other member of the staff who were in that hallway? No. He shot and killed her and then called in a radio report that said he was taking shots when no shots were fired. This is going to be a major problem, and the major media ought to be covering it. Back in just a moment. Glad to get your calls. You got the Lars Lars. vegan actually is they say cows are bad for the environment because all they do is eat plants and fart 
just like vegans. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, even without participating, post-debate polls crowned Donald Trump as the winner uh, already. And uh, that's a little bit ahead of the game, but it's bothering Joe Biden and a lot of other people. Does this signal a shift in some of the voter expectations out there? I thought we'd talk about it with John Schweppe, who's director of policy and government affairs at the American Principles Project and Donald Trump's decision to simply avoid the debates altogether. John, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Lars. Thanks for having me. So what do you think about Trump's decision? Because I thought, well, I thought it was a good strategic decision. It doesn't seem to have hurt him. In fact, I, I think you could argue it's actually helped him. Look, I'll tell you, Lars, as a movement conservative, of course I wanted Donald Trump to the debate. I think it would have been good for conservatism, good for the Republican Party. But in terms of his actual interest in winning a primary, which is the goal here, uh, it's really hard to dispute the 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 smarts of, of this political strategy. I mean, he basically iced his opponents and, and put them on a stage that didn't matter. Uh, and it was hard for them to really look meaningful in, in that setting without him on the stage. And so uh, obviously it did work out based on the polls. But, you know, I think politically, uh, in terms of strategy, certainly it was pretty smart. See, I would always like to see debates, but that's me as a reporter, me as a talk show host. I'd like to see the candidates get out there and mix it up a little bit. The problem is the debates aren't really debates very much anymore. They're, you know, or what are they? Events where candidates show up with pre-planned answers to pre-planned questions, even though they don't, they know generally where the questions are going to be. And you can tell sometimes where it's like watching somebody who's not a very good speaker who says he's looking for an opportunity to throw in that joke that he decided would be a good joke. So he shoehorns it in and you think, okay, you're kind of an amateur. Uh, I, I think Trump didn't want to be part of that. And, uh, you know, Reagan used to say, vote for the best conservative you can vote for who can win. And I would say, go with the strategy that works that gets you, you know, to the winner, you know, to the finish line as the winner. And in this case, Trump's strategy was stay away. And 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 I I would love to see Joe Biden debate some of his opponents, but I don't think that's going to happen either. No, and it's actually a interesting cop because you know Biden's opponents have no shot whatsoever. Why should Trump have subjected himself to Chris Christie, for example? Like, there's obviously an argument for DeSantis and Haley because you know they're at least at double digits in the polls, low double sure. digits, but double digits. Uh, but Chris Christie isn't even a Republican by any meaningful standard at this point. So why? Should Trump have to put himself in that position to to be battered and attacked? And again, like, you know, I, I think this is something where those of us who are so smart, who had all of this advice for Trump, you got to go debate. And I'm including myself in that. Uh, you know, we we're just wrong. Right. And that's that's ultimately you got to give him credit for for his political wisdom here. Now, the question is, will it be used against him when he says, OK, let me debate against Joe Biden, which, you know, the Democrat Party is going to avoid like the plague right now. And is Biden going to be able to say, well, you wouldn't debate your opponents? No, you're, he was already the odds-on favorite to win by, I think, a majority most of the time, and usually double-digit margins ahead of anybody chasing him, including DeSantis and including Haley, who's also not sounding like a Republican these days uh, as well. But, uh, but, but when he wants to debate Joe Biden, is America going to tolerate a presidential election where the top two um, you know, the, the two party nominees simply don't meet on the same stage ever. I think the advantage he has is that Joe Biden refusing to debate uh, is going to be harmful in terms of the narrative, which is that 
Biden is essentially, and I, I'm sorry to say it, you know, a dementia patient at this point. Yes, he is. And I think most Americans kind of recognize that. So his unwillingness to debate, you know, with Trump, it was obvious he didn't want to get up there and risk his poll. Right. I mean, that's yep. the biggest attack you can launch. But like the guy is, you know, his aptitudes there. I mean, he's very smart. He's very, co- you know, coherent uh, with Biden. It's obvious he doesn't want to get on the stage because he can't. Right. We're, we're talking about the State of the Union now uh, is going to be in March because I guess, you know, the spring months are better, better for his mental acuity uh, than, than the winter. I mean, it's, it's crazy what we're dealing with here. And this guy is running for reelection. And I think that's going to be a huge liability for him. I mean, is anybody on the Democrat? I never get Democrat guests, John, not because I don't ask for them, but because they just don't agree to come on. So we have occasionally a Democrat will be persuaded to come on. But I'd love to ask him this question. If this guy isn't the ideal candidate, why don't you find a better one? What's wrong with that? And and they seem to think, well, this he's our best shot at this point because he's an incumbent president and incumbent presidents tend to do well, except he's the first time that I can think of in American history where somebody who's so mentally incapable is going to be pushed forward by his own party so he can get, you know, slaughtered at the uh, at the polls in November. At the real. Yeah, I think I think they're they're living in 2020 and going off the conventional wisdom then, which is that Biden was a great candidate because he was Uncle Joe. His favorables were high. And that's just not what we're dealing with now. I mean, his favorables are unbelievably underwater where, you know, Trump is beating him in the polls and Trump has favorability issues. So uh, I I just don't think that's going to work out for them. I know they're trying to, you know, uh, not risk it, but I wouldn't be shocked. You know, if you see Trump winning in the polls by, by 10 points in June, uh, if suddenly you see talk about a, a late, uh, you know, a convention time switch because they don't want to lose to to, to Trump. But who do they go to, John? Do they go to Newsom? <laughs> I, I'm afraid I know, I to say too. who I think their <laughs> secret. I think their secret weapon is Michelle Obama, and oh I know God. I know that's crazy, but it just fits perfectly with she the whole identity America. thing. John, my favorite, I've almost committed it to memory. She gave a bunch, a few speeches before they finally put the uh, gag on her back when she was, you know, when her husband was running. And she said, America is a just downright mean place where the average person can't get ahead. And she said that as the daughter of a guy who worked at the water department in Chicago who ends up going to uh, Harvard Law. And you think, hold on, you're proof positive that the average person can get ahead. How in the world do you hate America so much that you t- tell us it's a, it's just a downright mean place where the average person can't get ahead? We've got examples all around us on both sides of the aisle of people who've done very well, even though they come from meager beginnings. Yeah, I think once all of her stuff was out in the open, it'd be, it'd be really bad for her. But, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, and these guys are... You know, we've already seen in 2020, they're willing to do anything to prevent Trump from winning. Um, and so they're going to be in a real tough spot if he's up, you know, if he's up six, seven, eight points, they're not going to be able to cheat enough to make up that difference. So no. they're going to have to figure something else out. You know what? That's the old rule, John. And you and I both know it. If it ain't close, they can't cheat. 
And, and, you know, they can cheat on the small numbers when they start trying, and especially with all the law changes that have been made in states after the most perfect election in American history, where all those states said, yeah, and we're going to have to change the rules because it wasn't very perfect after all. John, thanks so very much. I appreciate it. That's John Schweppe, Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project. Your phone calls are welcome. 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed, and you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Comes to health, we're all on our. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I don't think there's anybody who's ever flown on a commercial airplane who hasn't looked at the sealed doors and the other parts of the bulkhead and think, I'm sitting inside of a big aluminum beer can. And what would happen if part of it just suddenly opened up? Because we've heard stories about things like that before. There was a Hawaiian Airlines flight a number of years ago where the entire top tore off and it became kind of a flying airplane convertible for a while. The uh, brilliant pilot on that airplane managed to get it back to the field and everybody on board safe. But This most recent incident where federal officials are looking at the mid-flight blowout of a section of the Alaska Airlines aircraft fuselage happened on, said, uh, over the weekend. They said the lost piece has now been found. And I'm already hearing about some of the airlines that are saying, hey, we found some of the problems. So I thought we'd talk about it with our favorite meteorologist and retired commercial airline pilot, although he still flies airplanes, and that's Chuck Weiss. Chuck, welcome back. Glad to be here, Lars. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. What did you think when you first heard the report that uh, that a plane had lost not an emergency exit door, but a fuselage plug or a door plug? Well, it was pretty surprising because uh, such a thing is would be very rare. I mean, in fact, uh, during my entire aviation career, I've never heard uh, of a plug door or a door actually failing in that regard and then coming loose and flying off the fuselage. So... It was very surprising, and uh, it's a shame that something like this had to happen with a company like Boeing, but uh, they've obviously got some problems. And Alaska as well. So let me ask you about this. Would you explain to my, I've done my best to explain, what, why is there a door plug there instead of an emergency exit door? Well, the plug is there because that's the way Alaska Airlines chose to configure that particular model of plane that they're going to use for their passengers. They didn't want the larger configuration, which would have made room to clear a row of of, uh, passenger seats there for an emergency exit row. Uh, And they didn't want that. They they wanted a smaller version. So uh, when Boeing built the aircraft, then, of course, if you're going to configure it to a smaller version, they have to put a plug where otherwise there would be a... uh, a uh, uh, emergency exit door. So that's why it's there, but it isn't meant to serve any function at all once it's plugged. I mean, it's uh, outside of maintenance, maybe doing, you know, routine inspections on it. It would serve no other purpose. 
Well, and now United Airlines, just in the last hour or so, has come out with the announcement they've grounded their 737 MAX 9s, and they said they've been checking them over. And, and this sounds disturbing for me, a non-pilot, Chuck. They said, we found some bolts that need to be tightened. That's a little disturbing when you say you've been flying airplanes, and now because of this incident, you ch- did a closer check on your planes, and you found some bolts that needed tightening? Yeah, that is, uh, that's very disturbing as well. I mean, uh, uh, people don't think about things, uh, you know, often, and, and the lay people that, uh, that don't study this stuff or fly don't think about it that much. But if you have loose bolts on a door, especially one that uh, could open, uh, you know, anything like that in a pressurized aircraft, a lot of people don't realize it, but when you climb in altitude uh, with uh, these airplanes, at the altitude the uh, the Alaska flight was at was 16,000 feet. But there's about 5.2 pounds per square inch of pressure put on that door by pressurizing the cabin at that altitude. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but 5.2 pounds per square inch, if you multiply that out by the square inches in one of those plug doors, you could be looking at up to 23,000 or, or 13,000 pounds of force on that door and if you're up at 35,000 feet, it's multiplied and increased by 10 PSI. So you'd be up closer to 24,000 or 23,000 pounds per uh, uh, total force on the door. So if they're not, you know, totally secured with, with very good bolts, there is a lot of outward pressure on anything that can be pushed out or fail like that. And the cabins are limited to about a pressure differential of 9 PSI. That's about as high as you can take the uh, cabin uh, pressure differential before uh, potentially having problems with it, but it's all monitored in the cockpit with instrumentations, and they make sure it doesn't go over that because otherwise they have emergency relief valves that will start uh, allowing air to go out of the cabin and lower that pressure differential. Okay, but, so uh, l- let me ask you a question. So Alaska says they had limited this plane to only overland flights, so no over long stretches of water flights, because they'd had indicator lights coming on saying they had a pressure problems somewhere they'd had them come on three different times should that should those planes have been grounded when they they found that kind of problem before a plug blew out uh, or or am i overthinking it well it it depends on what the maintenance people would have found they may have not been looking in the right place because uh, they obviously when there's a pressurization problem they look at the components of the pressurization system the bulkhead the uh, outflow valves the sorts of things that could cause that problem and if you're not thinking about the door, like, well, we have no reason to be suspicious of that, but that's actually where there might have been some leaking air because the bolts weren't secured on the door, it's easy to overlook something like that. That may have been the problem, but I'm not sure because uh, I wasn't there. But that aircraft was certified for flight over the ocean. Uh, it was, it's called ETOPS, and those aircraft can fly over, over water like that, but if Alaska made a decision not to do it. They obviously had some concerns, which we don't completely know about, uh, you know, because we're not not in the company, obviously. But they they were, were aware of, of some sort of problems. Whether they actually narrowed it down at that point, I don't know. It sounds like they didn't. I mean, I think I'll, I I don't know. I'll speak for myself, Chuck. I've had cars before that I said, well, I'm happy to drive it to work and back, but I'm not driving to Seattle and back because I don't trust my car that far. But if you've got an airplane where you say, "Yeah, it's okay for overland, but we don't trust it over water. That sounds like an airplane that shouldn't be in the air. Well, it, 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 you, could, you could probably look at it that way, because the reason why they didn't want to take it over water is because 
the idea behind a rapid decompressure or rapid depressurization of the of the fuselage is if you're up at 35,000 feet, you have to descend very rapidly because without oxygen, your time of useful consciousness is only uh, 30 seconds tops. So you've got to make an emergency descent with oxygen on, and you've got to get down to 10,000 feet or lower. And if you're out in the middle of the ocean where you've got quite a ways to go to your nearest alternate airport, uh, you're going to burn a lot of fuel at that altitude, and that's probably why they don't want to do it. They would be short of fuel required to get to their alternate airport uh, with the ETOPS uh, configuration. So that's why they decided against that. Uh, over land, it's very easy to find a place to live or a place to uh, to land if you had a problem like that and had to make an emergency landing, and you can certainly return to the place you departed from or continue on to some place close by. But if you're over the ocean, you don't have that option, and that's why they decided we're not going to take the chance because if something did depressurize and we had to get down to those altitudes, the engines are going to be burning a lot more fuel, and we could end up short of of uh, where we uh, how much fuel we need to get to our destination. And yeah, then you if, got you're, if you're trying to get to Hawaii, you, you don't have a lot of divert options between the mainland of the United States no, and no, Hawaii that's true. at all. And so, that's true so, with uh, that's true with the with a lot of the uh, overseas flying too. When you go to Japan or China, you know you're covering a lot of area there, and your options are limited if you have to go down. So, absolutely, that's Chuck Weiss, retired airline pilot and also meteorologist, good global warming debunker. Back in a moment. Glad to have you listening to the Lars Larson Show. Someone has a plan for illegal aliens. Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Questions there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com you realize just how fast we're sliding down that slope in the direction of socialism when the government starts to talk about ways to nationalize, that is, take possession of, both inventions and patents. And if you think I'm overstepping that or over-describing that, Joe Allen joins me now, who's executive director of the Buy-Dole Coalition. Mr. Allen, welcome back. Lars, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. All right, well, just to prove I'm not a liar to my audience... What is it that the White House, well, well, I mean, look, there are going to be, I know there are people out there who say every word he says is a lie. Okay, I'm saying they're trying to nationalize inventions and patents, and the White House is proud of it. They're bragging about it, so tell me what they're doing. Well, basically, we have a law that was put in place in 1980, which has made the U.S. the the international leader in, in innovation. And basically, it allows universities and small companies to make inventions with government funding to turn them into commercial products, and that's great. Uh, when we passed the law, we also said if if somebody's not trying to commercialize a product, the government can then what's called march in 
and force the university to license somebody else to make sure it's being made into a product. What's happened is, for some reason, the Biden administration is now claiming that that law allows the government to march in and license a copier if, if someone doesn't like the price of a product. And while that may sound r- rational, and it, it doesn't to me, but it might to somebody, the problem with that is our, our, our system is driven by small companies. And any large competitor or foreign competitor can now use, use what, the Obama, what the Biden administration is proposing to basically say, hey, we can make what Lars, what Lars came up with and took him 10 years and a million dollars to create. We can make it cheaper than he can. Therefore, the government should license us and let us copy it because that's going to be good for the public. And the problem is it just knocks the prop out from U.S. innovation. It, it, it would be a, a boon to China, to China because this is something you can you know, use to beat down entrepreneurs. And again, a copier can always make things cheaper, but um, we're the people that leads the world in innovation. So it, it turns our whole system upside down and, and really doesn't do any particular public good. Well, and in fact, I mean, let's say I came up with a physical invention, you know, a device of some kind. And China marches in and says, hey, with our environmental rules or lack thereof, with our labor costs or lack thereof, with our environmental regulations and all these things that we don't have, that the United States has in spades, we can make that that device that Lars has created, uh, you know, and we can make it a whole lot cheaper and provide it to the public. So the Biden administration says, that's great. Why don't you go ahead and do it? Now, even if I'm still allowed to use my own invention or license it to somebody else, if China's making it for five bucks and Americans are making it for 10 bucks, we know who's going to win that race. And, and it's actually even worse than that, because just the just the threat of, of me saying, you know, for example, let's, let's suppose you're a small company, which our system is driven by small companies. You have to get venture funding. So if I if I want to harass you, I can just say, hey, I'm filing a marching petition against Lars because I don't like his price. What's going to happen is that could easily take the government a, a couple of years to decide what to do. In that time, no one is going to fund you. So this opens itself up to unscrupulous people for shakedown artists to say, hey, Lars, it would really be a shame if somebody followed that. Maybe you should make it worth my while not to do it. And it, it just allows our competitors, even if these things aren't accepted, it allows our competitors now to beat down our small companies when they're most vulnerable. And again, we're beating the Chinese in innovation because of our small companies. Uh, this is being done in the name of, of controlling drug prices. And the irony is, it can't possibly do that because drugs aren't made with government-funded inventions. They're made with a, a, there might be some government-funded inven- patents there, but there's a whole series of other patents made by industry. So even if you did march in against drugs, you couldn't copy them because you can't get access to the privately made inventions. What you could do is if you started an environmental company or an energy company, a breakthrough in battery technologies, you're likely that your inventions will be federally funded, and those are mainly made by small companies. So... It, it, put a, it puts a well, target on the back of anybody who's commercializing a product made with government funding. I'm talking to Joe Allen, who's executive director for the Buy Dole Coalition. And Joe, you mentioned batteries. About a year and a half ago, we talked to a Seattle company that had access to and had licensed or wanted to license a, a something that had come out of a government lab. And it was battery technology. It was the, I think we called it the secret sauce at the time. It was some different uh, you know, mixture of the kinds of things that go into a battery, the liquids that go into it, that made the batteries a whole lot more efficient. And then they found out that even though it was developed in a, I think it was the Northwest Regional Labs, uh, that they, they, that a Chinese company or a company that ended up being sold to a Chinese company had possession of the patent, even though it had been developed by the U.S. government. And they said to the U.S. government, hey, let us use it. 
uh, we're 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 meeting all the criteria. And as and I've never been able to get the battery company to talk again. They talked one time, and then after that, I don't know if they were worried about you know reprisals from our government. But basically, it's a Chinese company that's now selling American-made technology right back to America. Well, again, that, that's, that's the worst scenario. And actually, even worse than that was before Baidol, we gave all of our technologies away. So they weren't, they weren't basically, that's why we passed the law, because we were, the, the other people were using our technologies that the taxpayer paid for free, and we weren't commercializing them here. But the final other thing I'd like to mention to you is Congress has expressly said, I work for Birch Bay, who is one of the authors of Baidol. Right. Right. Congress, Congress expressly rejected price control as a mechanism of Baidol. So what's happening is the bureaucracy now is changing the law without the consent of Congress. Congress has voted this down every time Bernie Sanders has been trying to promote this idea for years. It's always been voted down. So now you wake up one day and the bureaucracy is saying, hey, we're going to put some, a meaning in the law, which Birch Bay and Bob Dole said is not there. Congress has voted down. So you're changing the law without without the consent of Congress, and it's going to knock the props out of U.S. innovation, just as the Chinese are openly saying that they plan on running us off the road. So it it really is a disaster. It's a shame because it's not going to accomplish any of the objectives that the Biden administration said, which is lowering drug prices. But it's having a chilling effect right now because this is hanging over people, and people right now are saying, why in the world should I put my venture funding into somebody like Lars Larson who's starting a new company based on a government-funded invention? Or why am I going to commercialize something? Because no one can tell you what a reasonable price is. That concept is made up by the bureaucracy after you commercialize something. So who's going to be dumb enough to make a product, spend 10 years of your life and maybe a million dollars, and if you fail, you take the hit. And if you succeed, I can come back and say, hey, I can make this more reasonably than Lars, and some bureaucrat's going to decide whether your price is reasonable. And if they think it's not, they're going to license a copier to run you off the road. No one's so, going to do that. And and they can do all that because, not because Congress passed a law, but because people within the bureaucracy said this is the way things ought to run, and they did it without the benefit of the people's representatives weighing in on it? Absolutely. And I think this is starting to get bipartisan opposition. The more people are aware of what this is, um, it, it's a disaster. It's a policy disaster. And the irony is it doesn't accomplish any public good. It's not going to help. It's going to help China a lot, but it's not going to do anything for U.S. It's not going to lower drug prices, but it's going to kill innovation. And, uh, you know, we, I think the more people realize this is going on, that the rule is pending right now. It's actually they made it a draft, draft rule, so it's not even a regulation. But it's open for public comment until February the 6th. So it's really important that people get a hold of their members of Congress, give them a heads up, because... Congress can weigh in and say, wait a minute, we never, this is not a law. You have no authority to do this, and we need to get this thing pulled back. It needs to be pulled back right now because it's doing damage okay. to our economy right now. Joe, tell me one thing. When people call their member of Congress, is there a term of art for what this rule is? It's, it's not the Bayh-Dole rule. It's the Bayh-Dole coalition that's fighting it. What are they calling it back on Capitol Hill? It's basically, it's basically a draft framework on March-in rights, M-A-R-C-H-I-N rights. And that's, that's a, a part of Baidol, which allows the government to, to, again, intervene if it looks like somebody licensed you and you're, not, and you're sitting on the, on, the, on the technology and you're trying to suppress it. That's legitimate for government to say, listen, we want to get these things commercialized. 
And they want to let Beijing Joe march in or let the Chinese march in and take American innovation. That's Joe Allen from the Baidu Coalition. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. All men and the people who love. A message from Lars. I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet. Please be patient. I'll get to you shortly. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I've taken a position on the Ukraine war that is not the most popular one in some circles because I've said I want to know what our national security interest is. I also want to know what the end game is and what anybody considers success. And until that happens, I don't want to see more tens of billions of dollars uh, shipped off to Ukraine. Michael Bernstam has been nice enough. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford with an expertise in international economics, the former Soviet Union and Russian politics. Uh, Professor Bernstam has been nice enough to come on and give us updates from his point of view. Uh, and, uh, and I'm glad to hear them because I want to see where we're going and whether or not we're moving any closer to an end to this war uh, between Russia and Ukraine that has been so expensive in terms of human life, but also expensive in dollar terms for the American taxpayers. Professor, welcome back. Thank you, and Happy New Year to your audience. Happy New Year to you as well. Professor, are are we getting any closer to an end, And, and what is the end game? Let me give you a very bad answer, unfortunately. There is no end game. We are not closer to the end. This is an unwinnable war by any side, and there is no end in sight. If you look at the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, it lasted eight years and ended with both sides were exhausted and million lives were lost. This is a sad lesson from history. When you look now at the Hamas-Israel war, you will see that we are talking about the future administration of Palestine after the end of the war. So we're thinking in terms that we know that there is something we can call the end of the war. We can call after the end of the war. Here in Russia, Ukraine, we don't have the the things that we can call after the end of the war. We don't know when it will end. We don't know how it will end. And when we ask the United States administration, it is clueless because there is no answer. And so does it make sense in that case then to sue for peace? Or are we just just yoked to this thing for the next several decades? Unfortunately, there is no peace because Russia expressed its desire to the uh, a lot of lands of the four, not only just of the former Soviet Union, and some of them are now members of the NATO and were obligated to defend them, but they want again back to the entire Eastern Europe. They're, they have this kind of a millenarian uh, vision of the world, uh, which no one uh, would, be, uh, would agree to surrender to. So there is no end until the regime change in Russia. Until Putin is gone. 
is what we mean. Uh, until Putin is, possibly until Putin is gone. All, all maybe bigger than that, maybe uh, a, a, a regime change in the sense like, look, in the Soviet Union we had the Cold War for 45 years, and then we, it ended in 1989. Why? Because there was a regime change from inside the uh, Soviet Union. So maybe there, there will be a regime change, but it has to come from inside Russia. And there's no middle ground compromise that could be reached between Ukraine and Russia to say, let's just stop the fighting. I mean, officially, we're still at war in, in Korea, aren't we? Right, exactly. And it is possible, one of the possible scenarios is to freeze it. But with the Koreans, everyone agreed that the 38th parallel is something that uh, uh, both sides from time to time they shoot at each other, send missiles. But don't forget, 28,000 of U.S. GIs, U.S. soldiers and officers are in South Korea. So we don't want to send, and that's what preserves peace there, we don't want to send uh, 50,000 or 70,000 American troops in Ukraine. And what would Ukraine consider to be an acceptable end? Just simply back to the old boundaries? That's what, that's what they're saying, because they're afraid that, uh, that uh, otherwise uh, there will be more and more and more demands. So this is a kind of peace which you sign today and demand more tomorrow. So you always renegotiate and renegotiate. There is no honest bargain and there is no honest uh, peace inside. Have you ever seen a situation where a conflict has been ended somewhere on the planet where the two sides said, we will agree, this is where the fighting ends and, and no more, what, no more compromises by either side un, until both sides are willing to do it and, and just simply make it contingent on that? Is there a way to do it that way? The last precedent was the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. <laughs> but it took 30-year war. Uh, 30-year war in Europe when Europe was uh, totally decimated. So, no, unfortunately, one side should win. And that means, and if the U.S. were to stop backing or even dramatically cut back the financing of the war, and I've, I've taken a position against that from the very beginning, uh, you know, whether I'm right or wrong about that, Professor, that's the way I see it. Uh, if we stop backing the war, Russia would win, correct? Uh, Russia would win. It may even win uh, uh, anyway, but uh, Ukraine will not surrender. So there will be, uh, even after World War II, when the Soviet Union took over Poland and Western Ukraine, what is now Western Ukraine, uh, used to be part of Poland, for five years, the mighty Soviet Union, which defeated Nazi Germany, could not defeat the insurgency there. So we will have something that we saw in Iraq after the American invasion. Lots of people killed, uh, and uh, there is no end in sight. So even Russia winning, it will be a victory uh, with uh, tens of thousands of people killed thereafter. So, so there, it's a no-solution situation. You can't quit, you can't keep going, and you can't find a peace in the middle. Do you see, is there any way to think out of the box on this one? Unfortunately, you've just put your finger on it, and unfortunately, it's just uh, uh, the best the best possible outcome would be a low-intensity warfare at this uh, line of separation, both sides exhausted, low intensity, fewer casualties, and waiting until the regime change in Russia. And America keeps on shipping tens of billions of dollars into Ukraine. 
And America keeps on shipping, and the European Union keeps on shipping, and uh, uh, they could use also the frozen Russian funds uh, that uh, to finance the war, which will be some sort of a, a divine justice in this. But generally, there is no there is no good outcome there. Well, and when you mention Europe's contributions, Europe was never enthusiastic about supporting in this case. In any in any case, what were they? Well, no, there, there, uh, actually, Germany is the greatest supporter there, and now, of course, uh, uh, people vote uh, with their own joining the NATO, Finland and Sweden, which used to be neutral, now have joined the NATO because they're afraid of Russia, because they understand that Russia will not stop that Russia on this march. So where do we go from here, Professor? This this just sounds like a terrible situation where there's well, going to be continued best, loss of a, life and continued costs indefinitely. Unfortunately, yes, yes, it's a, it's a long war. It's a terrible situation. It's a global tragedy. And the best possible outcome would be just kind of to freeze it somewhat with a low-intensity warfare along the lines of separation. Okay, so does Putin try to amp up the level and say, well, then we're not going to have low-intensity I'll start using more powerful weapons. Uh, he 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 will run out of money uh, because oil prices are declining, natural gas prices are declining, and Russian exports are declining. And he uh, now has a huge budget deficit, uh, which is very difficult to finance. And uh, there are some uh, domestic problems there. So, uh, it, but he will he, he 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 may try to escalate. So this is this is a very difficult situation. Professor, it's always a pleasure, and Happy New Year to you and yours. Right. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you, sir. That's Michael Bernstein, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's got expertise in international economics, the former Soviet Union, and Russian politics. Your phone calls and emails are welcome, too, at 866-PAY-LAW. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers go to the head of the line. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. This musical message to anyone who wants to indoctrinate our school children. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. The same movement that throughout the mob, the United States Capitol isn't just trying to rewrite history, January 6th, they're trying to determine to erase history. That is Joe Biden in a speech earlier today. Now, Biden went on a frightening tear in a speech on Friday, and he did it again today by painting about half of all Americans as enemies of the state. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. If you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to call in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. You want to vote in our Twitter poll or X poll, you can find that certainly. And that question has to do with the Defense Secretary of the United States. United States, who went just a little bit AWOL. 
He was gone. He was in intensive care in a hospital because of some surgery that he had December the 22nd. We still don't know why Lloyd Austin had that elective surgery. It was not emergency surgery. It was scheduled. And then he went back to the hospital on the 1st of January. But nobody at the Pentagon thought it was important to let the commander in chief, Joe Biden, I know he's not really calling the shots. It's really Obama, uh, but it's not Biden. But Biden wasn't even told that his own defense secretary had been in the hospital out of uh, basically out of out of the picture, out of the loop until last Thursday. That's when Joe Biden, days later, finds out that Lloyd Austin is in the hospital, the defense secretary of the United States. And that his deputy secretary, who had been assigned Lloyd Austin's duties in the interim, was actually on vacation in Puerto Rico while Lloyd Austin was in intensive care. If anybody knows the answer to that, I would love to know what it is. In any case, you can find the X-Poll at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. But let me get back to these crazy speeches. Joe Biden came out on Friday. And what he said in a speech, among other things, because he said a lot of things, was he effectively condemned Americans who don't agree with the Democrat Party and don't agree with what Joe Biden has been doing to this country. You know that this, con- this uh, uh, country has a president right now who has amazingly low approval ratings. They fell into the 30s. It's one of the lowest points in the Biden administration. And now Joe Biden is, at least in theory, running for reelection. And he's out on the stump now, except he doesn't have much to brag about. He can't brag about the economy. He can't brag about gas prices. He can't brag about the tens of billions of dollars that he sent off to corrupt Ukraine, where his crime family made so much money. He can't brag about any of that. He can't brag about the exit from Afghanistan, leaving Americans behind despite a promise not to. He can't brag about any of that. In fact, I rack my brain at times because I find the best way to deconstruct somebody else's argument in favor of something is to imagine myself trying to support Joe Biden. If I sat down and said, I got to figure out what are the positives of the Biden administration? A bunch of people appointed as judges who can't tell you what a woman is or what a man is. An administration that's driven America to a from a one trillion dollar deficit every year, which is bad enough to a two trillion dollar deficit, amazing amounts of crazy spending. And then Joe Biden, who doesn't seem to be even tuned in to what's actually going on in the world. He thinks the economy is going great. So let's start first with this, where he speaks to the issue of Gaza and the fact that there are protesters all over this country right now who are shutting down freeways, who are shutting down uh, major tunnels in and out of New York City, who are going out and literally taking their case out, not just to the people, but they're getting in the face of the people and saying, we're not going to let you drive down this road unless you listen to what we have to say. So what does Joe Biden say about that? I understand their passion. And I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. I'm using all that I can to do. Now, did you hear the interruptions in the background of that soundbite? That was pro-Hamas, pro-terrorism, pro-Palestinian protesters who are literally interrupting Joe Biden's speech. Now, does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. Unless you consider that America's political left, the ones who favor terrorism by the, uh, the, the terrorists of Hamas, they've decided that if you won't listen to them, they will force you to listen to them. 
And then what Joe Biden just said, I'm doing everything I can to get Israel to get out of Gaza. They're in Gaza to destroy a terrorist organization. And the Democrats have kind of walked themselves into a corner. And here's why they're in a corner, because they want to stand up and say, we support the Palestinians. And then a Palestinian terrorist organization slaughters more than a thousand people on the 7th of October. And all of a sudden, it's the Democrats who are saying, yeah, terrorism, we're in favor of it. And it's an untenable argument. And then when Israel tries to do what the United States has done when terrorists have attacked us, you go after the terrorists, you hunt them down, and you kill them if you have to. You wipe out Hamas. And now Joe Biden is promising to tell Israel, stop hunting the terrorists. Doesn't make any sense at all. And then then Joe Biden tried to link somehow America's MAGA movement, and I consider myself part of the Make America Great Again movement, and that's Donald Trump. But Joe Biden is trying to say that if you're in favor of making America great again, then you are basically taking the side of the South in America's Civil War. Listen to this. After the Civil War, the defeated Confederates couldn't accept the verdict of the war. They had lost. So they say they embraced what's known as the lost cause. A self-serving lie that the Civil War is not about slavery, but about states' rights. They've called that the noble cause. That was a lie. A lie that had, not just a lie, but terrible consequences. It brought on Jim Crow. Yeah, maybe Joe Biden is forgetting the part where the people who backed the South in the Civil War were today's Democrats. It was Democrats back in the day. It is Democrats today. And if you say, but Joe Biden's not a racist, he's not a segregationist. Oh, yes, he is. And I can prove it with his own sound bites. In fact, his own vice president criticized him as being a thoroughgoing racist uh, when she was running against him before she got the second in command job of vice president. And then there's this where Joe Biden indicts the entire MAGA movement because of this list of uh, particulars. Take a listen. Banning books, denying your right to vote and have it counted, destroying diversity, equality, inclusion all across America, harboring hate and replacing hope with anger and resentment and dangerous view of America. That narrow view of America, zero-sum view of America that says, if you win, I lose. If you succeed, it must be I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. It may be worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. Joe Biden, the guy whose allies are trying to have Donald Trump removed from the ballot, he says it's Republicans taking the Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by.